In a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers Podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers Podcast. The Oil & Gas Global Network is the largest community of oil and gas podcasts in the world with about 15 different podcasts. And I'm so grateful that you're joining us today here on the Digital Doers podcast. Very excited today to have my my guest, Ted Grabowski, with us. And we're going to get started. He's going to tell us a whole lot about uh, a varied career and leading several organizations and uh, before we do, we're going to, I want to say a few words about our sponsor, HPE. If you get a chance, go take a look at their website, hpe.com. And it, in particular, they've launched a new platform called GreenLake. HPE GreenLake is the, po- is the platform, and it's all about bringing the cloud to you wherever your apps and your data live. So they call it their edge-to-cloud platform. It's all about simplifying IT management with a key feature being the ability to manage and configure from a single location all of the shared services and assets across your entire IT inventory, not the least of which is the ability to comprehensively track the consumption to ensure that your investments are being utilized as intended. So if you get a chance, go check out HPE and take a look at their GreenLake platform. So I'm joined today with a gentleman, um, Ted Grabowski, like I said. And Ted is going to talk to us a little bit, like I said, about a very a varied background. And he leads a company that over the last, oh, year or so, I've had the opportunity to interact with several employees. And um, they have stuck out to me as uh, some of the uh, or their culture and uh, their their values that um, appear obvious, and I've never read one of their posters talking about their mission or their values, but it just seems to come across in the way people behave with each other and and the way they try to learn. So, with that, I'd like to introduce Ted. And Ted, I may not get your title just right. Are you president? of Texas Brine Company? Uh, yes, Joanna. Actually, technically, I guess, President and Chief Executive Officer. Great. Great. Well, um, so tell us a little bit, how did you get into this position here? How long have you been President? Uh, for the last 23 years, actually. So uh, it's been a bit of a circuitous path from where I started to where I ended up, but it's been an enjoyable one. Great. Well, so tell us a little bit about that path, if you would. Well, I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I graduated from Temple University way back in the dark ages in 1978 um, with a degree in environmental engineering technology and spent subsequently about the first 16 years or so of my career uh, in the environmental area, first as an environmental engineer and then eventually becoming director of environmental affairs for Sun Oil Company. And then I had the opportunity while working for Sun to make a pretty 
non-traditional and significant change from the environmental area to become refinery manager for Sun at their refinery in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was the first time in my career up until that point where I had kind of real profit and loss responsibility, and I, I found it so stimulated and, and exciting. And so I spent about four or five years there and then was subsequently recruited in 1999 by the family that owns Texas Brine Company to come in as their president, and I've been here ever since. Great. And so with that career, you started out as an engineer, not that you can't go into environmental as is completely unrelated, but then kind of moved over into the environmental part of the business, over into the operations management, if you will, to another company. So uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, what has struck you, what has sticks out in that career? Well, in some respects, when I reflect back on it, although it's not cut perfectly in half, I, I almost think of my career as having two distinct halves one half in the environmental area, I spent really trying to master a very narrow area of business operations, that is how how to manage the environmental affairs of complex organizations to ensure it could comply with the myriad of rules that each of us face. And the second half was almost the exact opposite. It was It was general management where you're responsible for virtually everything, and as a result of that, do not have the luxury to be an expert in anything. So one half I was an expert and with narrow responsibilities and kind of the second half, it was the exact opposite. In addition to that, the first half of my career, I spent working in the bowels of large publicly traded companies. Whereas for the last 20 years or so, I've enjoyed the benefit of working for small privately held companies. So there's a lot of compare and contrast associated with that as well. And so it almost sounds like when you talk about the first half of your career being, you know, an expert, if you will, in the environmental area, and then the second half, you know, you're in a position where you may not be an expert over much of anything because your span of responsibility is so broad and so wide. Some people might make a bit of a comparison between a manager and a leader, in in that shift as well um speak to us a little bit if if, how do you see that did it seem like a difference when you moved from one half to the next well i I think there is some difference although there's clearly a lot of similarities you you can be a manager for example of an environmental function and still enjoy the benefit of having a lot of expertise in a narrow area Uh, But once you transition to having, you know, profit and loss responsibility and become more of a leader as opposed to a manager, I I don't think you have the comfort of leaning on one field of narrow expertise as kind of like your home base and your comfort zone. I think it tends to force you to kind of think more broadly, almost by definition, you're forced to think more broadly. And I think it also forces you to kind of become a much better delegator than maybe you ever had to be when you were an individual contributor. You know, you know, when you have your own expertise and source of knowledge, it's easy to delegate because you know the answer to the question before you delegate it. As you move into a different realm of responsibility, you literally don't know the answer to the question. So you have to develop a competency or a comfort in kind of delegating more effectively than maybe you ever did before as well. So when you 
Were there any experiences that you can think of that were particularly helpful to you as you kind of had to get comfortable, perhaps, with delegating to folks that when you didn't know the answer? Yeah, I I think early on in my tenure as a refinery manager, and just to kind of help set the stage, I was someone that was born and raised in Philadelphia, relocating to Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and you know, nominally in charge of running a refinery that had somewhere around 400 employees. So very early in my tenure, it became obvious to me that I better get to know as many people as fast as I can. And so I would, I would spend virtually every weekend, at least one day each weekend, with a box of donuts visiting control rooms. In fact, I, I used to jokingly call it my donut diplomacy. And so I'd visit from control room to control room to control room, literally just to introduce myself, but just as importantly, get to know most of the men and women that worked in the bowels of the refinery. And my biggest takeaway from that exercise, and I think it's stayed with me ever since, was I think at one point I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation where I estimated that over 30% of the operators working in the bowels of that refinery had little businesses on the side, whether it was home repair, taxidermy, a fishing guide, it didn't matter, but they had little businesses. And if you factored in the number of spouses that also had businesses, you could get almost 50% of the households having some kind of entrepreneurial outlet for their energies. So I walked away from that experience with some recognition, I, I think it's still true to today, that there's a lot of men and women that work in our companies that already understand business. They already have a certain level of sophistication. It's just that we don't routinely ask them to kind of dedicate that part of their energy on our behalf. We hire them as arms and legs. And I always thought then and until today that that's really a shame. I think we have a resource available to us within companies that is waiting to be unleashed And now how do you create the environment to unleash it? And so that's maybe that's a question. How do you create that environment to unleash it? Well, I think there's, you know, there's certainly many ways to answer the question. I think there's several elements that go into answering the question. But I think the first way is is really creating the opportunity within a company to be authentic and to create opportunities for two-way communication because I, my experience w- with people in general is is that if you can establish the environment where people feel comfortable talking up, talking horizontally, and talking down equally well, I think there's the opportunity to kind of tap into that resource of knowledge and ideas. And until you're able to do that, it's it's hard to imagine just how many good ideas there are that are just waiting to be tapped into. And so do you, any possibility you have an example of, of perhaps either where in your past companies or maybe at Texas Brine where you've, you've seen that, have an example? Yeah, I think there's a, uh, yes, a short answer is I think there's several examples. One that was most poignant to me, and let me refer back again to the refinery days, Um, There was a period of time at our refinery in Tulsa where the market was going against us. Conditions were tough. Margins weren't particularly good. So we created a process where we gathered together men and women from every group and every level in the refinery 
in an effort to kind of essentially brainstorm ideas to improve not just the refinery's operations, but the cost management, margins, you know, the sky was the limit. What ideas do all of us have? And I remember distinctly going through that process and the single most valuable idea that surfaced as part of that process literally came from two operators embedded in our wax manufacturing plant, a very small operation inside the refinery where we took raw material and further processed it into very low volume but very high quality wax, the kind of wax that's used to manufacture candles, for example. And their idea was with a little bit of changes just in the piping inside that unit. No vessels, no heaters, nothing sophisticated. Not a big capital investment. Not under a $100,000 investment. We created at the time what we thought was an extra half a million dollars a year of margin. And, you know, for that tiny investment to get that much margin that just repeated itself every year was extraordinary. And so, you know, I think it's a very tangible kind of evidence of just what the potential may be by tapping in to those ideas that very frequently come about by the men and women that are closest to the front line. Right. They know. They're the right. experts on the right. wax plant. They're the experts right. on you know brine operations. They're the expert on storage operations. And so how do you create the process that gives them the comfort to kind of come up with those ideas and then, you know, see what happens when we're able to implement them, you know, in connection with our efforts. So do you think they, they what do you remember? They, they, they said, oh, I think that would be good. Or do you think they had an indication of how valuable that could be? Well, I think, I think they understood qualitatively it was valuable. Got it. How valuable? I think it took some engineers and some marketing people sure. to make the calculations to quantify right. it. But, you know, once, once you, and maybe that's another element to the answer to your previous question, is that w- one way of helping to unleash that energy in, in the workplace, you know, really starts with education. It's really educating the men and women that work in the company over not just what the company does, but how the company actually makes money, what threats are the company facing. Some of them are outside forces over which you have little control. And Interestingly enough, what preceded that example, at least in the case of the refinery, was literally an education campaign. We sent people around to every control room off shift with a little tiny slide deck that was entitled, how does the Tulsa refinery make money? And really an effort to educate 400 men and women over this is really what's important to this business to operate well and to make money. And I think by planting the seed of that education, that's kind of a prerequisite for being able to harvest kind of good ideas like right. that. So actually treating them like a little more than just hands. Well, I think that's the theme. That's really the theme is how do you how do you acknowledge just not their willingness to kind of sweat on your behalf, to turn the valve on your behalf, to kind of drill the well on your behalf, but also crediting them with the fact that they came to work that day with a brain in addition to arms and legs. Right, right. That's a great story. That's a great story. Um, and so I'd like, you know, the, the, the way that I became familiar with Texas Brine and some of the other affiliated companies was through education or training. And so it strikes me that the approach that you guys take here at, at Texas Brine 
is well, it doesn't strike me. It is absolutely different. Um, I've now been, you know, doing the uh, facilitating the the um, uh, uh, health and safety councils uh, foundational leadership two day training class. I've done that for let's say eighteen months, maybe a little more. At least forty, maybe fifty different companies have sent people, and there's one company. Uh, or kind of group of companies, I guess, because I know Texas Brine has some some partners, if you will, or some one group of companies that do it something very, very different. And that is the way that you guys uh, seem to regard training. Can you speak a little bit about, tell us a little bit uh, about what it is you guys do and why you do it so differently than any other company I've seen? Well, I guess uh, perhaps the difference really lies not necessarily in the method in which training is delivered or administered. I think I think all of us have very similar approaches to training. In our company, at least, an awful lot of training is administered through computer-based training modules. Some of our training is on the job. Some of our training is, you know, essentially through pairing mentors, experienced operators with less experienced operators. Those techniques and tools, I think, are very common and are in common use. When it comes, however, to training kind of leadership, whether it's supervisors, managers, or helping executives develop their competency, I think there's the chance that the one thing that may be slightly different than than some companies is the level of involvement the leadership has in delivering that training. And I think the example, Joanne, you were referring to was classes that we held, multiple day classes, you know, thanks to your help, of course, um, with uh, class size was generally around 20 employees. And the latest example, um, I as president of a brine company helped kick off personally day one, the president of a sister company, the salt company, she came and helped you know, had lunch with with all the students on day one, and the president of yet another one of our affiliates, the shared services entity, came on the end of day two and helped wrap it up. And uh, based on your comments, um, you know, I think that may be what's different. And I think the difference really, you know, resides in the fact that we take this investment in employee training very seriously. It really is an investment. And so if you believe that's true, the question becomes, how do you maximize your investment? And our leadership team, both in the salt company, the shared services vehicle, and the prime company, you know, really reached the conclusion very easily that, well, it starts with management commitment. If, if we can demonstrate to the men and women who are going through the training on our behalf just how serious we take it, then I think it, sets the, it creates an environment where the training is likely to be more effective and have and won't be perceived by the student as a two-day root canal that they have to survive <laughs> that it's really you know intended to create an environment where learning is the primary objective and i hope that's what we're achieving at least that's the effort we're making to achieve it absolutely and i want to be you know i want to be clear um you know ted and and i'm not going to get everyone's name but i think ted and and marcy and um I think Scott, uh, maybe are some names of some of the folks that some of the executives that have come to the class and been involved. Um, 
you know, I want to be very clear. It's not like you guys show up and spend five minutes and say, welcome, and we expect you guys to pay attention and, you know, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about here. You know, I mean, Ted, when you showed up, I don't know that it was an hour, but it was a good 40 plus minutes where you talked a little bit about why the people that were sitting in this class were there, the expectations that you had. You talked to them a little bit about the company, uh, you know, what the expectations were for, you know, a well-running company and maybe some of the the new uh, um, indicators that, that you had. So it, you know, it really was more than just saying, yeah, we're glad you're here. You know, we're, we're writing a check to, to Joanne and HASC to make this happen. You know, you really go to some effort to try to help people understand what it is they can get out of this so they can actually help the company. Well, and I think what's most important about that exercise, too, and at least what I strive for, I'm not certain I always achieve it, is to make those occasions kind of an opportunity for two-way communication as well. And you, you may recall during the session that you attended, you know, I circulated among the students. It's not like I was at a podium. Um, I ask students questions by name as opposed to just open-ended questions and wait for volunteers. Joked with students that I knew well and could get away with the joke. And all that's designed to kind of foster the two-way communication that's kind of also a prerequisite for kind of creating the company culture that we'd like and that enjoys the values that we like is if you if you start with the premise that you can respect the men and women that work in your organization, enhance that premise by creating an environment where they feel engaged and empowered and then kind of sprinkle that with authenticity, I think there's no telling what you can kind of create as a result of that. And that's just one small example, um, you, you may recall during the session that when I when I was soliciting feedback on issues or questions, you know, I reminded everybody in the room that I'm like the perfect person to ask questions to because I've got thick skin and a short memory. You know, even yeah. if you offend me, the odds are I won't remember it tomorrow. <laughs> well, so, the, you know, the fact is I won't cry. And, yeah. you know, you're entitled to an answer to every question. Sometimes the answer is I don't know. Sometimes yeah. the answer is I can't tell you what the answer is. And sometimes the answer is what the answer is. But all of us are entitled to answers to our questions. And just creating the environment where that communication can flow, I think, right. is a prerequisite for the kind of culture we're trying to create. Sure. Yeah, I think that's uh, it. It certainly, you know, I think sends a message when you say something like, uh, "I have thick skin and a short memory." I think it certainly sets the stage for a low risk uh, to actually speaking up and saying something to the president of the company. Yeah, and I, and I think that's important, and that's one reason why you know another kind of cultural artifact of our company is trying to maximize the chances where all leaders, not just executives, supervisors and managers are able to engage with the men and women in the company in small group settings because that too promotes low risk kind of communication. There's there's a big difference, at least in my mind, between me taking a box of donuts and going to their control room and talk versus the same box of donuts in the back of a conference room and telling them to come to me. And I think by by setting the stage properly, whether it's, you know, Saturday morning or whether it's shift change, you know, the reality is, is that I think the environment, the occasion that you pick to kind of engage in that small group kind of two-way communication 
can have a meaningful influence on the quality of the of the engagement, not just the quantity of the engagement you enjoy. So you gave us one example from the refinery early on in your career. So say a little bit more about how do you think uh, Texas Brine Company gets value from these employees feeling comfortable uh, speaking out? Well, I think uh, it's... You know, it's a great question, and it's one that has a lot of nuanced answers to it. But maybe the best way to answer it might give you a, a recent example. And I'd be by recent, I mean it was April of this year. For for over a year, a small group of our employees have been working on essentially a, a safe driving policy. We've been in business for seventy five years, and it dawned on us a couple of years ago. You know, we don't have one document that sets the expectations for all of us regarding what the safe driving mean, maybe it's time to do it. And so for over a year, this group of dedicated men and women worked to create what we've subsequently called the safe driving guide. And the ink was dry on the draft version. We were just getting ready to roll it out. When I happened to look at my calendar and I had an evening meeting already set up with all of our professional truck, truck drivers. Part of our business is we have a small trucking operation that supports the rest of the business. And literally a light bulb went off and said, oh my goodness, we have the only group of professional drivers in our company clumped together next week for a a pizza dinner. Why don't I come and preview it? And which is exactly what I did. It was visited their turf, very informal previewed what we were about ready to roll out in this safe driver guide i have to confess walking into the into the um, garage that that evening i was a little bit apprehensive as to oh my goodness i'm going to get feedback from these professional drivers that say we i went way too far and in reality the feedback i got by through consensus at the end of the evening was the exact opposite ted we don't think it went far enough wow we see what happens on the roads every Ah. day in the Houston area. We know how bad it is. We think you can go further. And so I think that's just a tiny example of the value of finding these authentic ways to kind of tap in to the men and women that work for you. Because I think even if there isn't a great idea that comes out of that engagement, just enjoying the comfort of knowing that the idea is not going to be resisted is valuable in and of itself. And so I think there's two dimensions to feedback. One is good ideas, let's act on them. But the other is reducing or eliminating resistance to change is maybe equally valuable. Yeah, and, and I also you know think just this notion of not making an assumption. Maybe you had a bit of a preconceived notion when you went in, but you went anyway, and what you found out is that perhaps your assumption didn't get validated. You actually learned something different. Well, they had a different perspective. I never cease to amaze myself about how little I know. <laughs> and there's just one more example. Well, we, we all suffer. We're all victim of our experience and we all suffer from our preconceptions. Yeah, I think that's right. So that's, that's, that's another great example. So we've, we've heard quite a bit from you about, uh, you know, how important you think it is to hear from employees and, uh, and, you know, not, not just uh, superficially. I mean, I, you know, you've given some really great examples of, you know, of really trying to engage so that you can, you can learn from, uh, from employees. So that 
seems to be an important part of your culture. Can you mention a couple of the other kind of key aspects of the culture that that uh, you guys strive for at uh, at Texas Brine Company? Yeah, I, I, yes, of course, and, and thanks for asking, actually. Uh, it may be useful to begin a little bit with kind of what our working definition of culture is. Great. I, I think it's a I think it's a noun that's used so uh, many times that sometimes we we trip over nomenclature issues. And if you know if you ask an anthropologist the question what culture is, the anthropologist will come up with answers that that may fit here. And it's 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 essentially the shared set of values and goals and attributes and practices that are featured in an organization. You know, as we attempt to achieve our missions. So at least the way I think about it, it's all the things it takes to make the company work other than the plant and the equipment. Now, you start with plant and equipment, but what else is required to make the company work and be sustainable? And I, th- I think that's a good working definition of culture. That's a great definition. And if you, if you think about the culture that you theoretically could aspire to for any organization, certainly not just ours, I think it has to start with your owner's expectations and it has to continue with kind of the nature of the business that you're in. And it, it, it has to kind of incorporate those expectations. For example, if your business is innovation, all you do is R and D for a living, that culture would look a lot different than a company who's in the nuclear power industry where one mistake can be catastrophic. And so the culture I think has to reflect your owner's expectations, as well as the business that you're in. Luckily, in our business, half of our business, which is the brine production business, it's salt water we're making. We think it's high quality and high saturation, but it's salt water. Luckily, that's not nearly as hazardous as many other businesses. But another part of our business, the underground storage of hydrocarbons, is a very potentially hazardous business. So we have this circumstance where we really do need to worry about just operating integrity and operating discipline. So I think if you if you were an anthropologist inside our company with a little hammer kind of hammering away for clues, I think one of the artifacts you'd pick up on is is the need for us to operate with a high degree of integrity, to have good operating discipline. And it's not so much that that for cost control measures, that's obviously important. It's really to ensure that we can kind of keep our promises and we can really operate really well. And so I think a lot of the artifacts you'd see in our company's culture are really derived from the businesses that we operate in, whether they're hazardous or not, whether we're a crucial raw material or sometimes a sole source raw material. All those things have implications, I think, on the cultural kind of elements that you want to embed in your company. And that's that's what we attempt to do is to kind of mirror the business needs with the cultural needs that kind of line up best with that. Okay. And so um, the the integrity has this meaning, you think, within Texas Brine of around uh, doing what you say you're going to do? Yeah, it's interesting, I think, Joanne. Um, you know, like all companies, we have a annual goal-setting process, like every company does, and we choose to organize our annual goals around four major objectives. Um, one is to 
hold on to our existing income, right? It's hard to be successful. You can't hold on to what you already have. The other is to grow our enterprise. The other is to enhance our sustainability. And the fourth, uh, not the, uh, you know, and one of the most important goals is to, the words actually say, operate with integrity. As we use integrity within our company, we, we mean simply do what we say we'll do, keep our promises. It's, it's almost kind of like a Christian concept of being a promise keeper. And, um, you know, and that's been a case where we've taken advantage of kind of the digital space and IT to help us be effective promise keepers. And, and, and that's one of the kind of the cultural artifacts the anthropologists probably would find if they dug around inside our company long enough. And so tell us, how do you use digital capability or technology to help you kind of live that value of, of, of integrity? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and let me hearken back to kind of my days as an environmental affairs person. You typically, and I think many companies, again, rely on things like auditing to, to help inform how well or poorly you're doing it with compliance. And let's face it, compliance really is promise keeping. You've, you've made a promise to a government agency, you know, in a permit, for example, to do certain things at a certain frequency. And traditionally, the way you would measure your ability to keep that promise is to have an auditor come in and kind of audit your results. That's certainly an effective way of doing it, and it's a common way of doing it, but it suffers, I think, from one major flaw, and that is, by definition, auditing is a backward-facing exercise. The audit auditor is looking backwards in time to see how well or poorly you did. So for several years, we struggled with, well, is there a companion process we can put in place that's a forward-looking process? to assure ourselves and ensure that we can be in compliance in the future, not just rely on the auditor coming back every three years or every year to tell us how bad you did it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just a reflection of how bad you were. The question is how good can we be? And so about eight years ago, a group of our employees, again, it's kind of homegrown using a SharePoint based database system, um, you know, developed a system. We probably inelegantly call the reminder system, uh, you can tell we're not great marketers. It doesn't have a great name. But, um, and so this database, 5,400 reminders reside in the database today, um, is really designed to inform individual employees in the company by name of an impending upcoming deadline associated with a promise we kept that they're responsible to satisfy. And so... For example, you know, many of our customers and our customer contracts, we promise in the contract, we'll calibrate the meter once a quarter. Well, it's surprising how easy it is to forget that. Somebody is sick, somebody leaves the company, you know, the, the knowledge isn't institutionalized. Well, the reminder system institutionalizes it. And so 30 days before the end of the quarter, the email goes out to the individual employee by name that says, don't forget to calibrate meter 101 by the end of the month. And oh, by the way, when you calibrate it, click here to show it's been completed. That to me is a wonderful companion to a traditional auditing process to help ensure that you kind of keep promises. And it doesn't have to be all environmental promises or safety regulations. It can be customer contracts. It can be landowner agreements. There's a variety of vehicles we use 
to make promises. Now let's have a system in place to assure that we keep those promises. And so I assume, which is, which is you know phenomenal, um, and and it, you know it's interesting. I mean, there there are a lot of systems out there, you know, particularly around equipment, right? Like maintenance equipment, reliability, uh, where you have systems. Um, but what I think I hear you saying is somewhere in the company, or perhaps it's it's grown over time. You've been able to identify those tasks, those uh, promises, if you will, that um, are high, highly important, and perhaps have some negative consequence to them if they don't get get done. And so, it's it's not just environmental or not just mechanical; it's all of these various areas. Well, and I think, Joanne, I think you may have hit the nail on the head. Is that you know, with the advent of of digital developments focused on preventative and predictive maintenance. And that's ubiquitous. I mean, almost every company has systems. Some of them are embedded in your ERP software like SAP or Oracle. But with the advent of those systems, there's whole categories of promises or requirements or deadlines or recommended practices that systems can help keep track of. And we're using, for example, we're an SAP company. We're using SAP to help us, you know, in PM and PDM and trying to enhance it. But what we were struck by was, unless it was specifically equipment related, there really wasn't a system keeping track of the softer promises that we make, many of which are just as crucial because if you fail there, you're compromising your license to operate. Right. It's not that you're compromising a piece of equipment. A piece of equipment. You're compromising your license to yeah. operate. It might cost you some cost you some money to yep. replace, but sometimes those other commitments you make, yep. you don't know how to get those back. No, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. And so I, I see kind of our reminder system as a wonderful companion to all the other tools that are available in our kind of digital toolbox mm-hmm. to help with those mm-hmm. kinds of issues, whether it's preventative maintenance, predictive maintenance kind of operating standards, keeping track of the number of hours on a motor. I mean, there's lots of systems in place that can help you kind of do that, many of them tied to the digital space or enhancing enhancements in instrument technology and information technology. But there wasn't a companion for the softer side of the business, and that's why we kind of developed our own. Yeah, excellent. Well, I do think that's, uh, I mean, Life gets kind of hectic. Work life gets kind of hectic, right? Very few people have the luxury of being able to focus on just one thing or just a few tasks. I mean, most people get pulled in multiple directions. Um, and so having this uh, this way to kind of keep track of what you said you would do and uh, is, a, is a great way, I think. Well, and the interesting thing to me, and it's I think goes to the under the heading of the law of unintended consequences is that with the advent and the growth of this reminder system over the years, and by the way, if you do the arithmetic, 5,424 reminders in the system today, some go out monthly, some go out quarterly, some go out annually, depends on the requirement, of course. But if you do the arithmetic, there's over 21,000 emails a year go out of that system to individual employees by name. It averages about 58 a day. Wow. The system generates, you know, they're all not going to the same employee, of course. They're going to the employee that's responsible for the issue. But 
under the heading of kind of unintended consequences, one of the things we found out now that the system's become as robust as it is, it's a great succession planning tool. Oh, wow. Because since it's SharePoint-based, it's essentially searchable by any field. So if a manager wakes up one day and realizes, oh, Mary, the instrument technician, will be out for the next six months, what do I do? With a few tickle of the keys, he can have the system print out every reminder that has Mary's name on it. So he at least has some assurances that critical deadlines won't be missed. Just because Mary's on vacation or yeah. out training or Yeah, that's sick. exactly right. Yeah. Or sick or left, for yeah. that matter. And right. I had my own personal experience with that during COVID. We mm-hmm. lost one of our executives to COVID. I got the I got the notification on a Saturday afternoon, asked the system administrator to tickle the keys on Sunday. On Monday, I had a list of every single upcoming deadline that that executive was associated with. And by Monday afternoon, we were able to parcel up the work amongst us so that at least we had the comfort of knowing we weren't missing any deadlines. And right. I can tell you, when we designed the system eight years ago, I don't think we ever thought, thought about it that way. Of that as a useful application. Yeah. So. So it's almost like you want to be sure that you don't have any orphan tasks. Yep. Any yep. little tasks sitting there that don't have someone looking out for them. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it does. Yeah. And the beauty of the reminder system, I'm sure some of your listeners can already snap to this, is that we also built an, a, an escalation feature in it. That if, uh. if Mary, the IT technician, doesn't close the reminder out in the allotted time, Mary's boss gets a notice. And if Joe assume he's the boss if joe doesn't close it out in the allotted time joe's boss gets an escalation and ultimately ends up in my inbox <laughs> if it doesn't happen and for natural reasons you can assume that people don't want those escalations ending <laughs> up in my inbox right. so there's kind of a self-compliance feature right. built into it as well so right well, that's that's uh that's excellent and and technology uh affords us some of some of that capability that uh that we haven't always had. Uh, when you and I started, we had a whole lot less technology helping us do that. Yeah, mine was a three-ring notebook. Right? <laughs> that was that was my technology mine, and a pencil. Mine but. too. Mine too, or something close. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I do. I do. I don't want to uh, completely thank you so much for for talking to us about, you know, how Texas Brine and, like you say, some of your sister companies, you know, how you've really gone about you know, thinking about what kind of culture you want, and then uh, using some technology, but certainly, you know, um, uh, you know, pulling from kind of our human, uh, our humanness, all of us have, to, you know, to try to create a place where, you know, people feel recognized and valued. And I don't say that lightly, because like I said, the times, I don't know, I'm going to say it's 40 or so, uh, folks, probably maybe a little more than that, um, you know, that I've interacted with. But, um, you know, it's clear that when you come in and kick the session off, they understand and they're trying to understand what it is they can get from that training that's going to make a difference. Um, and so I, I've, I've always been uh, very impressed with that. And so I appreciate. Before we go, I would like, could you say just a few words about Texas Brine Company? I, I think there may be some listeners that, that aren't, um, aren't familiar with, with that business, that industry. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and I'll try to make sure it's not a commercial. Um, <laughs> we're 75 years young, so we've been around a long time. We're a very small company, privately held, closely held. Uh, the core of our business is really solution mining underground salt formations to create high quality and high saturation brine, which is the raw material to manufacture chlorine. Um, um, to put some dimensions around that, uh, based on Chlorine Institute data, we think we supply about a third of all the salt that's consumed in the United States to manufacture chlorine. That's the core of our business. Now, because underground solution mining assault formations naturally result in caverns, from the earliest days of the company going back into the 50s, our founder, Lloyd Webb, also helped pioneer the, under, the use of underground caverns for the storage of hydrocarbons. So the second major part of our business is just that, leasing essentially cavern space to counterparties to store everything from natural gas to crude oil to natural gas liquids like butane and propane. To put some dimensions around that, we think if you total up all the space we have leased for natural gas, our little company represents about 12% of all the gas stored in the U.S. in salt caverns. Uh, if you total up all the space that we have under lease for liquids like crude oil and propane and other products, uh, the volume that we have under lease represents the volume of about 18 very large crude oil carriers. So although we're a very small company, we think we occupy a pretty sizable space in the niches in which we operate. And then the last kind of part of our business I referred to earlier in our talk was what we call the trucking business. It's selling brine in truckload quantities to a variety of industries, uh, everything from the oil field where it may be used as well drilling, workover, or fracking fluid, to hospitals and medical centers, to zoos, to fish farmers. Um, that's a business where we have about 20,000 loads a year of brine running between us and customers. Uh, and so although it's a small business, it's kind of a cute little trucking business that we also enjoy the benefit of. And then supporting all that is a central technical group of geologists, well specialists, scientists, process engineers, the drawing room, those kinds of things. So there's an engineering component you know, available to kind of support those three major operating segments of our business. Well, great. Thank you. That's a great introduction. And it is, like I said, I, I, I had never, I can honestly say, I could never, uh, had never even thought about how all of those products came to being. So it's been a bit of an education. Not only thank you for telling us about that piece of the industry that's, I don't think, uh, uh, highly known, perhaps. And the other thing is, I appreciate Ted, you taking the time to talk to us a little bit about being a leader and uh, uh, values and uh, maybe how to get the most out of the people and make sure that your people have a very fulfilling work experience. I, I like to call these, sorry, I like to call these winning workplaces. And that's what I think about when I think about of Texas Brine. Well, thanks. And sorry for the interruption. And thanks. I, I, I appreciate the characterization. I'm not always sure we deserve it. But the reality is, one of the benefits of being a small, privately held company is the fact that we're small. And the fact that we're small means that we should be able to enjoy more direct, more authentic, you know, more meaningful conversations, you know, both horizontally and vertically that can make us fleet footed. And, 
you know, if, if we can't compete, you know, with some of our, you know, others in the marketplace that are bigger than us, we can compete with speed and authenticity and integrity. And, and it's for that reason that why some of those kind of cultural artifacts become mission critical to us because it's a key component of the strengths we're able to deploy in the marketplace. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Ted, for being with us today. Um, thank you to all of our listeners. I appreciate that you hit all the right buttons so you could join us for this conversation. And one more time, I'd like to thank HPE. Go and take a look at their GreenLake platform. Um, they want you to have that cloud experience at your edges, your co-locations, wherever your data and applications reside. So until next time, bye-bye. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.